Well, I don't know if you've ever gotten this phone call for those of you who are married from your wife. When your wife tells you, hey, we've got $23 left in our bank account between now and your next payday, 10, 11 days from now. But we've got to make this $23 stretch. Now, when I say $23 in a checking account, I'm not saying we also had another $20,000 in savings, a bunch of, you know, 401k savings. It was literally $23 left to our name. She said, I've paid our tithes, I've paid our bills, and everything that needed to get paid has gotten paid, and we've got $23 left in the bank account until 10 days from now you get paid again. So uh, I opened the refrigerator after hearing that message from my wife, and find uh, one little old apple in there, a few sticks of butter, and nothing much else in the refrigerator. And I remember that day as a church planner in San Antonio, looking into this empty refrigerator with $23 left in our bank account. At the time, we had a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and I prayed with tears in my eyes, Lord, you've got to provide. I don't know, like, how it's going to happen, but you've got to provide. And so then I was also sitting there, Wondering, how did I get myself in this? I just was following a call from God to plant a multi-ethnic church in San Antonio, and here I am with $23 left to my name and an empty refrigerator and a four-year-old and a two-year-old and a wife to feed and care for. And I remember uh, initially uh, meeting with Dr. Tony Evans, who I work for, and he said, hey, when you graduate from Dallas Seminary, what do you feel like God has called you to do? And I said, pastor a multi-ethnic church. And he said, well, what's out there? I said, not a whole lot. He said, what are your options? And I said, really, it's to go to a mono-ethnic church. And at the time, I'd been preaching at a lot of uh, African-American churches and becoming the pastor and then integrating it or planting a multi-ethnic church. And so Dr. Evans wisely said, if I were you, I would plant a multi-ethnic church. Trying to transition a church is going to be very difficult. So with his blessings, we came down to San Antonio and there were about 20 churches that said, hey, if you send down a guy, to plant a church, we will support that guy. And so we came down, my wife and I, we sold what we had in Dallas, moved to San Antonio, moved into a $72,000 home in Northeast San Antonio. And then we were given a list of all these churches that said, hey, if you move down here, we will provide your financial needs. Now, here's the other thing. Uh, each of these churches regularly asked me, they would email me or we'd sit in person like this, And they say, now, where are you thinking about planting? Where are you going to plant? Where's the location? I remember the group that we were with said, don't tell them. Just tell them that you will work with us and find a suitable location. So anyway, we moved down to Northeast San Antonio, get ready to plant this church. And I contact every single church on this list, all 20 churches. And none of them respond to me except for two churches. The one church committed to 200 a month and another church committed to $75 a month. And this was like 15 years ago, and I know the cost of living was a lot lower then, but not that low, all right? So we had a decision to make, and so my wife and I planted this church uh, with a few friends of ours, but $275 was not going to cut it. And so I began to work full-time as a personal trainer, and that's what I did. I know you're looking at me saying, you work out? I know. Anyway, I was a personal trainer, and during uh, peak season, January and right before like spring break and that type of thing, I would be making $5,000 a month, pretty easy, $5,000 a month. But during the holidays, no one wants to talk about working out, eating right, those kinds of things. And so during those times, especially around Thanksgiving, we go from like $5,000 a month down to like $1,000 a month. And that's what was going on. I was 
planting a church and also working as a full-time personal trainer. I'd be up at four in the morning, train clients from 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. I'd come home for lunch, and that was our family meal because I would sit down with my wife and our daughters and have the family meal because at four o'clock, I'd go right back to work and work until 9 p.m. But during the holidays, again, people don't want to work out. So my income goes from 5,000 a month down to 1,000 a month. My wife pays all the bills and says, we've got $23 left for your next payday. I open the refrigerator and there's nothing in there. Here's my eyes, I begin to pray. And say, I said, God, you know, I'll eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for the rest of my life, but please provide for my girls, please. And so I get to work and there at my job, uh, most of my clients, they're quite well-to-do. I worked at a club similar to the Houstonian. And so one of my clients was a vice president at a large insurance company. She said, you know what? I can't come in for our session tonight. And so I said, well, I'm still gonna have to charge you. She said, that's fine. But she said, I've also got season tickets to the Spurs, and I want to see if you want to go tonight. I give you a parking pass and two tickets to the game. My husband and I have season tickets. Great. So I call a friend of mine who's a huge Spurs fan. I said, hey, we're going. I've got, I'm sorry, i got two tickets to Spurs. you want to go with me? Of course, I'll be there. So I remember vividly, I was still in my personal training outfit. I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for dinner that night. My friend picked me up, and we rode to AT&T. And as we were there... A guy comes up, and he's a radio person, and he says, hey, you guys want to be in a contest? And the, uh, my friend says, what do we need to do? He says, you need to put on this T-shirt, and a spur is going to ask you a question. And if you answer the question, you win a prize. And my friend, who wears probably a triple XL, said, what size is a T-shirt? He says, it's a large. And so he goes, my buddy will do it. So I'm like, okay, let's do it. So halftime comes around. Bruce Bowen appears on the screen, and he says, what is my nickname? What's my nickname? And everyone around me is whispering, the rash, the rash, the rash, because he's all over you, right? So I answer, and I'm on a jumbotron, and, and everyone's like, oh, and he's like, hey, do you know the icky shuffle? So I do the icky shuffle for him and all that. And I said, the rash. And he says, you win, you win. And I said, what did I win? And he says, you won a $100 gift card to HEB. And at the time, I was, we didn't have money for a cell phone. So my friend, who's an executive, he had a, so I said, can I use your phone? I need to just call my wife. And so I'm crying, tears of joy now, saying, we got a $100 gift card to HEB. So that next morning, early before anybody was up, I think it was a Saturday, I went and bought $100 worth of potatoes and flour and milk and cheese and uh, fruit and all that kind of stuff to help stock our refrigerator. So I want to let each of you know, Philippians 4.19, I know we quote that verse, you know, if God has guided you, you know, God guides, he provides, he will provide for your needs and it will deepen your faith and trust in God. When you're sitting there going, I don't know how God is going to provide for what we need. But here's the thing. Second thing is this. Uh, how many of y'all know that support for your church plant comes with strings? That's what Aubrey Malfour says, right? Financial support comes with strings. Say amen if y'all agree with that, right? So a few years later, we had the opportunity to replant our church with a denomination. And I was working full-time as a personal trainer, and they offered basically support. And so I went and met with this denominational leader, and then we signed up. We went to their boot camp and their assessment center, and the guy said, you know what? You passed. You were the highest graded church planner here of all 20-some church planners. I'm like, okay, great. So we began support with them. But then something happened with that. We began saying... Uh, getting emails and letters saying, you have to be at this meeting. And I'm like, what? I really don't want to go to the meeting, though. Well, you are one of our church planners, so you've got to be at this meeting. 
So I would go to these meetings. Another one was this. He says, you have to put our denomination's name in the name of your church. And I'm saying, but there's like three or four other churches in our area that are part of the denomination, and they have nothing in their name about the denomination. Of course, they were all mega churches, but I just said, you know, it seems unfair that a small church plant would have to do that, but they wouldn't. But here's the last straw. Um, I began to hear from people who knew our leader, superintendent, and he said he's very manipulative. He tends to kind of shade the truth in his favor. And so we got a call on Palm Sunday. Maybe some of you have been here before. On Palm Sunday, we met in a movie theater, and our trailer got stolen. And so on Palm Sunday, we used to do a lot of practical jokes, so I thought the guy was joking with me. And he said, hey, pastor, our trailer's been stolen. So before Mark Batterson made it famous, we met in a movie theater, but everything was stolen. And so this leader of ours said, hey, don't worry about it. We've got an umbrella policy that covers everything. No, don't worry about it. We'll cover everything. So then we're on television, we're on the news, on the radio, and people are offering to give support. I turn it all down because we've got insurance. And so a few days later, he says, hey, how are things going? I said, good. I said, we've been getting calls and stuff from people who want to help out. He said, oh, take the money. And I was like, why? We've got insurance, don't we? He's like, yeah, but it'd be good maybe to have a little extra, right? All right, I'll spare you the details. All the control, all the stuff that was going on, all the politics, all the mess that was going on eventually came to a head, and he says, I want you to come to a meeting with us. And I said, well, can I bring some of our elders? Because our elders have an issue with you lying to us, saying, and ultimately, there was no umbrella policy. After about three or four months, there was no umbrella policy. So our elders had some issues with that, obviously. And so I said, can I bring an elder? He said, no. I said, can I bring my wife? He said, no, we just want you. And I said, uh, well, the witnesses other than you and your buddies, he's like, no one else. We want you. And so I didn't go to that meeting. They said, we're going to be in Austin on this date. We're calling you to come to this meeting. I didn't go. Started having like anxiety attacks and panic attacks. You've ever been there before? And then I get a letter in the mail saying, we're going to call our lawyers and we're going to have you come and be sued if you do not come to this next meeting. And so I thought, 1 Corinthians 6 is pretty clear about lawyers and all that stuff, but all right, I'll come to this meeting. And so I called Dr. Evans and I said, Explained everything going on, really don't want to go. And he said, is he your authority? I said, yes. You need to submit to his authority and go to this meeting. And I was like, oh, not the answer I wanted to hear. So I went to the meeting and through it all, uh, long story short, uh, they basically let me go. They said, hey, you're not fit for this. We're going to separate part ways. And so a few days later, I sent him a letter saying, hey, you know, based on what you said, mutual parting of ways, Paul and Barnabas not able to work it out. We're going to part ways. I got a response a few days after that saying, you know what? No, quit lying. You quit. I said, I didn't quit because I made a commitment to our elders that I would not quit. If you fired me, you can fire me. But I said, I wasn't going to quit. And so that day I realized, and there's a lot of other bitterness and hurt and pain, as you can imagine. Um, just encouragement to you all as I close. Ephesians 4.32. Um, if you're going to be an effective church planter, an effective church planter and pastor, You've got to be just over generous with forgiveness. All right. And the talk was talking about when you get burned, church politics or by church leaders. Uh, you know, Psalm 55, 12 through 14. Betrayal and hurt hurts even greater when it's people you trust, right? And so my lesson, my point is again, is forgive as Christ has forgiven you. We pray for y'all and then I'll hand off to Jerron. God. Uh, I'm so grateful for you allowing me to be pastor of City Refuge and just this journey of church planting uh, two multi-ethnic churches and the hurts and the pains and the struggles that came with it.
But God, um, I know that you use it to sanctify me, to make me pastor and the man that I am today. So God, I pray for each man here, each woman here. God, we're going to go through betrayal and pain and being let down and lied to, broken trust. God, I pray that you would help us to forgive just generously, ruthlessly, God. We don't want to hold bitterness in our hearts. God, we want to have pure hearts and clean hands and be effective church planters and leaders for your namesake. We ask all in Christ's name. Good afternoon. So Chad reached out to me, Chad Clarkson, and he said, hey, can you speak for a few minutes at the next HCPN gathering? And before I committed, I said, Chad, what are, what's the topic? And he said, challenges that you might face in church planning. I said, well, I'm an expert in dealing with challenges in church planning. I can talk about whatever you want me to talk about. I have faced many, many challenges. Raise your hand if your church is under five years old or the church you've been a part of is under five years, five to 10 years. Okay, 10 and higher. Okay, all right. Just so I know who's, who's in the audience. I want to talk to you very briefly um, from, I guess, the title, Stay in Your Lane. Stay in your lane. If you're a church planter, stay in your lane. I was driving up 290 a few weeks ago, and I, I ran into traffic that was more severe than normal. If you live off 290, you know traffic's already bad, but this day, it was more severe than normal, and so I just knew that there was an accident in, in, in front of me. And so as I'm driving up 290, stuck for about 30 minutes, and I get to the point where I'm confident that there is an accident right in front of me. When I get to that place, I realize that there was no accident in front of me. There was actually an accident on the other side of the highway. And, and what people were doing was this thing called rubbernecking. Do I know what rubbernecking is? So I, I just became aware of rubbernecking a few years ago, but there's an actual term for when people start looking over into someone else's lane to see what's going on over there. And, and the funny thing is when you uh, go to YouTube and you put in rubbernecking, what you'll see are a bunch of videos of people looking over at accidents and then they drift out of their lane and they end up causing damage to their own car or themselves because they've been rubbernecking. One of the challenges of church planting is rubbernecking, where we start looking at what other people are doing and what's going on in these other lanes. And what happens over time is it sometimes can cause us to drift from the mission and the calling that God has for us. But the, that's not the only problem with this rubbernecking. Rubbernecking, if it's done too much and too often, can lead to this debilitating disease that I call comparisonitis. Comparisonitis. Comparisonitis is this disease where when you take your eyes off of what God has for you, it negatively impacts you in, because you're caught up in what other people are doing. Now, I know nobody else here deals with comparisonitis. No one else is afflicted, but I had a terrible bout with this, and I still struggle with this illness from time to time. There was a man in 1 Samuel chapter 18. You guys remember King Saul? He was the king of Israel at that time, and he had a young warrior they brought this guy out in, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and they brought this guy out, and he kills Goliath, and his name was David. Now, Saul and David uh, were working together uh, to take down the Philistines. When you get to 1 Samuel chapter 18, the women, after a, series, a period of battles, the women came up with a song. They pulled out their tambourines, and they pulled out their instruments, and as they're, they're heading back home, uh, the scripture tells us that, that the women in the cities of Israel came out with this song, and they said that Saul has killed his thousands, 
And if the song would have ended right there, it would have been great. Because then Saul could celebrate like, man, this dude has killed thousands of people. This guy is doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. This dude is an all-star. He should be on ESPN somewhere. He should be doing interviews like that because he is killing it. And Saul would have room to celebrate if that had been the end of the song. But if you're familiar with that passage of scripture, that's not the end of the song. Because the women were saying, yes, Saul has killed his thousands, but David, he's killed 10,000. And the Bible says that Saul became angry and he was displeased with this saying. What was happening right here in plain sight was that Saul had a disease of comparisonitis that began to bubble up in his heart and ultimately destroyed his mission that God had given him. There's a thin line in the church planting world between borrowing best practices and this disease of comparisonitis. Absolutely, we're supposed to share best practices. If you're, do, if you're killing it over here, yeah, I want to know kind of what you're doing so I can integrate that into what we're doing. If you're killing it over there, yeah, I want to talk to you, encourage me so I can, you know, integrate some of these things into your stuff. But comparisonitis takes it a step further. Comparisonitis says, well, um, I have a way that God has wired me to communicate and to preach, but you know, Matt Chandler's got the arm thing going, and so I need to preach with my arms. I can't, I can't, I can't hold a wireless mic. I, I, uh, I need a, you know, one of the lapel mics or whatever because I got to move my hands because that's what Chandler does, and he has, what, five, six, seven thousand people on a weekend. I, I need to preach like Tony Evans. He uses all these great illustrations and everything, so I need to communicate like him because he's, what, running like eight or nine thousand on a weekend? I need to change up your style. Or, or, or maybe, maybe Steve Furtick. I need to dress like Furtick. I got to get the skinny jeans and the, the right shirt, and I got to turn my mouth to the side every now and then when I'm saying stuff because, because he's got, what, 10, 15,000 people? So I, I abandon my preaching style and the way that God has wired me because I'm trying to be like someone else. I'm comparing my ability to God's. Or maybe you're saying, hey, I need our worship team to sound like Hillsong. They're doing, what, 50,000 on a weekend around the world? And you don't even have, like, you got two people on the praise team, and you're like, we're trying to be like Hillsong. You don't even have a band yet, and you're trying to be Hillsong, because they brought 50,000 people. You can't do that. Or maybe you're saying, hey, I need to abandon my discipleship strategy, because this dude over here, they're doing house churches. They got 80 people showing up to house church every week, and the dude's house is big enough to hold 80 people. You're like, so we need to abandon our discipleship strategy, though it's working, though it's fruitful, but we need to go over here because this is what they're doing. This is comparisonitis, and you rubberneck enough, and you drift enough, and you begin to damage the mission that God has given you, and furthermore, you become discouraged. You start questioning, why is God doing that over there, but he's not doing this for me? We get angry with God, did you really call me to do this? Kind of like, how did I get here? Why did you bring me to this place? These are all problems with comparisonitis. But here's the grossest form of comparisonitis. It's when you look at someone else's, and it seems that there's some aspects of your church that are going better than theirs. And this gross form of pride begins to well up in your heart. And then you think, well, because I'm doing a little bit better in this area than them, then now I'm more successful. And you begin to measure success by maybe what they're doing compared to what you're doing, and yours may be a little bit better. Comparisonitis. And now we're not measuring the success 
of our church by being faithful to the call of God in our lives, Ephesians chapter 4, 1, and walking in a manner that is worthy of that call. I had a severe bout of this a few years ago when I was a church planning, HCPN church planning resident. Some of my resident guys are, are right here with me. Uh, one day I was at Pastor Blake's office over at Crossover and he said, hey man, how's it going? I said, it's not going well. He said, what's going on? I didn't know it was comparisonitis at that time, but I said, man, I'm really struggling. I said, these dudes in my group, they're killing it. I said, there's dudes in our group, they, 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 all of them, not just one, one or two, but all of them have like 512 people on their launch team. And, they, and they're like nine months away from launch, but all of them, Pastor Blake, have 512 on the launch team. All of them, every one of them, except for me, has a million dollars in the bank. All of them. All of them have, have linguists on their team who only read the scriptures in Hebrew, Aramaic, Aramaic, and Greek. That's what they, all of them have that. All of them have Kirk Franklin's little brother leading worship at all of their churches. All of them. He said, man, what you gonna do? And I was like, I, I don't know. And what I heard him say next was basically, brother, stay in your lane. He said this. He said, here's what you need to do, Jerron. You need to celebrate what God is doing in their church. I'm like, celebrate? Like, I'm struggling. Like, that's all you're going to give me? It's like, no, you need to celebrate what God is doing in their ministry. Even if they're seeing more fruit than you are right now. And, and here's what he said. He said, if you're not careful, what it's going to do, it's going to, whatever you're dealing with, is going to rob you of being content with how God has wired you, gifted you, and what he wants to do in your ministry. If God is calling you to pastor 100 people in this season, you pastor 100 people and pastor them well. You remember this, Pastor Blake? If God has called you to pastor 250 in this season, you pastor 250 people well. If he's called you to pastor 512 people with a million dollars in the bank, you do that and do that well. But whatever you do, stay in your lane. Well, how do you do that? I'm glad you asked. It's right there in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. The apostle Paul is using a race analogy and he says, laying aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us, run the race with endurance the race is set out in front of you doing what? Keeping your eyes what? Fixed on Jesus. So, so I'm not rubbernecking now. I'm, I'm, instead of rubbernecking, I'm fixing my eyes. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the cure. Now, I know I already lost half of y'all because I said Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. <laughs> now, don't get all theological, theologically bougie on me today so you, don't, you, you miss what I'm trying to say. Keeping your eyes Look, when I have 512 people and a million dollars in the bank, maybe I have more time. I can debate that with you if you, if you want. I, we ain't got time for that right now. But what I'm telling you right now is your race is long enough and hard enough as it is. It says you got to run your race with endurance. This is going to be a long race. It's a hard race, and you don't have time to be looking over there. You got to run your race. You got to run around, and you got to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. What is Jesus going to guide us to do? He's going to guide us to keep our minds, our eyes fixed on the cross, on the message and the mission of Jesus Christ for your church, for you and your ministry. So if you suffer from comparisonitis like I did and still do from time to time, stop rubbernecking, start fixing and get well soon. Well, let me just say before we get, uh, I get started, I can't tell you how appreciative I am of HCPN of what Chad Clarkson does and what the men and women do that uh, help uh, be a part of this. It really is. I don't get to come out as much as I'd like, uh, but whenever I'm here and see the men and women and see the diversity 
that we have. I know it's been really popular, uh, rightfully so as of late, to talk about Houston Strong, but man, I, every time I'm here, I always think gospel strong. Uh, the picture that uh, you men and women paint about the unity of the church and the mission of establishing churches for the sake of Jesus for the city of Houston is, uh, I can get weepy if I think about that too long, so let me get into it, but just uh, thank you for letting me be here. So let me give you a little bit of my story. I'm going to talk to you uh, briefly about what needed to change in my preaching uh, once I uh, went into a church plant. Now, I didn't plant the church that I'm at. Uh, in fact, I started in Dallas. Before coming to Clear Creek Community Church, I was the pastor to single adults. Uh, it was a ministry that I had started, <clears throat> and I, I thought I was, I, was a, I was an okay preacher. And to be fair, I actually thought I was pretty good. Um, like a lot of guys that think they have the gift of preaching, they tend to be a little overconfident, at least I was. And I, the reason I felt that way is I'd helped start the singles ministry at this church, and it exploded. It grew up real big, real fast. In fact, um, I led a Bible study, which was probably five to six times larger than any other class or study we had in our church, and it was a mega church. And so I, I started to think about, uh, wow, I must be pretty good at this, but it was illusory. It was deceptive because I... Uh, I thought I was more well-equipped in the pulpit than I really was. Don't get me wrong. I, I believed I really had raw talent and God's given skill or God given skills about preaching. In fact, uh, right before I'd even left uh, the church I was at, I was invited by the senior pastor to share the pulpit on a Sunday and he'd never done that. And so I'm speaking to 4,000 people thinking, man, 25 years old, this is going to be really good. But what happened and what the reality was is my confidence outpaced really my prowess in the pulpit. I was confident, but I, I wasn't polished, I wasn't that great, but I was good enough uh, for a guy named Bruce Wesley to take a flyer on a guy that was 26, just turning 27, inviting me to come down to be his teaching pastor at Clear Creek Community Church, his fledgling four-year-old church plant that had a really good start, and he had asked me to preach, and not only would I be preaching on a weekly basis, uh, but it would be something where I would, uh, not just for single adults anymore, I, get to, I got to speak and preach and teach God's word to the entire body of Christ, at least as it was expressed at Clear Creek Community Church. And on top of all that, I got to sit under a phenomenal preacher in Bruce. I don't know if you guys have got to hear him a lot, maybe you have because of ACPN, but it just, Bruce has these incredible uh, preaching skills. And so while that was wonderful to hear, it also messed me up. Because I think sitting under preaching can mess you up as much as help you. Because what happens is, and I think Jerron talked about this a little bit, is that you get enamored with the kind of style that you hear and you think, ah, oh, that's got to be my style too. And look at all these people at Clear Creek Community Church and listen to how they're responding to Bruce and, and you know, Bruce with his humility and just his skill set. I mean, I could ask him questions about preaching. And, um, but what happened is I lost myself in it. I mean, I lost who I was. I didn't know who I was. And so as I started to preach at Clear Creek, I just did as really kind of how I was taught in seminary. Now, I want you to hear this. I'm, I'm not knocking seminary. I've been to seminary twice. I've got a, you know, a master's degree and a doctoral degree from seminary, so I love seminary. But the way seminary had taught me, and I'm not going to say that seminary taught you this way, but I think that they might. They, they teach very linear, very straightforward way of preaching. In fact, there was this maxim that I heard a lot, which was, you know, teach them what you're going to, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and tell them what you told them. And usually that'll kind of make itself in three points in a poem, and then you're just rocking and rolling, and everything's going fine. But what I, what I realized is that when I was preaching, I was seeing people uh, listen to me, but they weren't leaning in with me. And I, that just bothered me, because I was trying to figure out who I was, and if I'm not this kind of a person, and I'm getting this kind of response. And again, I, I know the Lord's got to be sovereign over all of it, but at least if I'm going to win it or lose it in the pulpit, can I at least just be me? 
And so what I started to try to do is just find who I was. And part of who I was was preaching in a way that I felt best impacted people. As Yancey Arrington, I love what Jerron said. You know, you're not trying to be anybody else. Like, don't be a really poor man's Matt Chandler where you can be a really wealthy you. So I, I just wanted to be a really good Yancey Arrington. I knew that was going to take a long time, probably 10 years for me. But once I kind of felt like, ah, oh, this is kind of how I preach, and I, I just want people to lean in, and because I, I believe what I'm saying, and, and I was a passionate preacher, and I was emotional, but I was also kind of still trying to figure out points and subpoints and sub-subpoints, and, and I'm not against points, by the way. I'm saying for me, here's what I'd rather do. I didn't want you to hear me. I wanted you to take a journey with me. I wanted you to experience the truth. And what I learned about preaching from my beloved professors and books that I'd read was that preaching is all about explaining something. Like, you got to really do the hard work to explain a text. Like, you better hit the commentaries, might hit Logos, you know, computer program, do a little bit of kind of commentary work and uh, like original word searches and all that kind of stuff. And what I realized is that's really not what I think preaching is. Preaching isn't just explaining. That's what a lecture is. Preaching is calling people to respond to what you've explained. So Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. So there, there was this kind of like, and I, I come from a tribe of theologians and theologues, and everyone's got to have right doctrine, and I'm all down for that. But what I realized is like, I just wanted to preach like Jesus would preach and like Paul would preach, where it's like, here's the truth, let me explain it for you, and then you got to do something with this. And so that changed the way I saw sermons. I wasn't just trying to think through sermons, I was just trying to feel through them. And no one taught me how to feel through him. So I just started to think, well, what, how does this look for Yancey Arrington? And so instead of saying, here's what you're going to sell him, tell him, and here's what you told him, which, by the way, has to be the most boring sermon in the world. Because here's what you've given up. You've given up tension. You want to know how my sermons changed? My sermons changed because I started to realize tension is important. Jerron did it. Icky did it. They explained the story, but they didn't explain it all the way. So why would I stand up and say, let's open to Romans chapter six and we're gonna look at this. And today what I'm gonna tell you is this and the answer is that. And then I'll give you five more points to tell you what the answer I just told you. I would think, okay, cool. If you just told me your answer in the introduction, I'll just walk out right now. But if I, if I take you on a journey with me where the sermon's not just static, it's an unfolding of a journey that you're coming along with me as we look through a text and find Jesus at the end of it. Maybe you'll just do something differently than just listen. Maybe you'll just, maybe you'll lean in. And that's what I started to see. In fact, uh, my aim in preaching was, was not, was not uh, explanation anymore. It was engagement. And I think, um, in fact, I, I just got through writing an article for the Gospel Coalition. It's supposed to come out, I think, this week. And what I've written in it, the title was, Why Church, Excuse Me, Why Good Preaching is So Essential to Church Planting. Listen, I know this sounds high and mighty, and I don't mean to be. I don't know any church plants that survive with bad preaching. I don't know if anyone will tell you that. I don't mind telling you that. It's not, it's not my full-time gig here, so I can go somewhere else and we're still going to pay me, hopefully. So um, you, you, you can suffer being bad at a lot of things. You cannot suffer being bad at preaching. And I would argue that most of you guys, if you're church planners, you're not bad at it at all. You're probably pretty good at it. And I really want, I think God's calling you to be great at it, whatever you look like, whatever great for you, whatever Taylor is great at, right? Whatever Steve Besner's great at or TJ's great at or Derek's great at or whatever you are. And I would say, no matter what that looks like in your personality, here's what you can't give up. Don't give up tension. You preach. Don't structure the tension out of your sermon. And so I know this sounds a little bit more technical. And Chad, how much time do I have, by the way? Three minutes. That means 30 for me. So 
what I would call you guys to do is to start looking at your sermons again with fresh eyes. That when people walk in that room, you tell them what you're going to talk about. You don't tell them everything that you talk about until you walk them through in a journey. I mean, that you don't sit up there and say, all right, today the problem we're going to address is this. And here are the answers to the problem. This, this, and this. Now let me illustrate that. Let me put some poems behind that. Maybe a rap song. Well, why would you do that? Nothing else that you have ever leaned into in your life gives you the answers at the top. What songs have you heard or what movies have you seen or what stories have you read that says, let's just give you everything at the start of it? I would say for me, when everything shifted for me, oh, there's probably a lot of other things too. I don't want to be, be unfair about it. But the biggest thing for me, think about this. Tension equals attention. The longer you keep the former, the more you'll keep the latter. So when you start writing your sermons again, and I'm, some of you are like, gosh, you screwed up my sermons this whole week. You can't say I go back and do all this stuff. Listen, I, here's what I'm hoping you're doing. I'm trusting you have good expo- expository skills. I'm hoping that you know how to get to Jesus because the gospel is the center of the Bible, period, Luke 24. But take me on a journey there. Make me want to want to believe that. And the way that you can help do that is by giving me the answer, but help me unfold it to that answer. Don't microwave me in the first five minutes of your sermon because what you've done in your sermon, in your introduction, I should say, is demotivated, demotivated me from listening to any of the rest of it. When all you got to do is, I mean, think about this. Think about being a baseball pitcher. You're not showing me the grip that you're going to use. You're going to hide that thing in the glove till at the very last second and throw it at me. So it's a surprise to me. Listen, man, there is, um, tension is not some kind of dark art. It's not some kind of black magic. It's inherent in the text of the scriptures. You want to read a tension-filled book? Read the Bible. It starts off in Genesis 3 and doesn't get resolved really until the end of Revelation. So, Preach like that. And when you do, I believe, you can also change your preaching. Change it for even better than what it already is. Maybe the questions you ask yourself are these. Am I preaching with tension? If not, how do I do that well? And if you are, are you sure you're doing it soundly? I'll just leave those tensions with you. Amen, brother. Uh, I'm going to speak to you in the little bit of time I have uh, today on being prepared for opposition from the enemy camp. Anybody know what I'm talking about? 1996, I became the founding pastor of a little church called the City of Refuge. Maybe some of you all have heard of it. At that point, we were planted in the heart of the Montrose area of Houston, which means that we were, every moment of every day, surrounded by radical homosexuals and prostitutes and gangbangers and murderers and witches' covens and glue sniffers and heroin addicts and maniacs of every sort. These were the ones we were going after, precisely because we believed these were the ones Jesus was going after. These were the folks that George Whitfield would have referred to as the devil's cast-offs. I was not prepared. After about a year uh, into that ministry with, um, I guess you could say, uh, several signs and symbols of external success, uh, 
Before long, uh, I found that the serpent had slithered up to my front door, had gained entrance to my home, had gained entrance to my family, and had gained entrance to my marriage. I was not prepared. Almost instantaneously, in the blink of an eye, I became the single father of two teenage girls who had watched the most unimaginable and unmitigated evil chew us up and spit us out with seemingly little effort in doing so. I was not prepared. But I'm here today to tell you, I think I'm a little better prepared today. And uh, I, want to, uh, I want to do a drive-by, if I can, on a few things that I've learned and continue to learn in uh, being properly prepared for the inevitable opposition and assault from the enemy camp. A couple of things. If I were to plant that church today, or to just be involved in a ministry that was sort of like it, number one, I would be deadly serious, deadly serious about the war, I said the war for soul. Not a skirmish. It's not a dust up. It's, um, it's not a misunderstanding. It's not a beat down. It's not even a battle. It's a War, an all-out war for the souls of men, women, and children. It's a life and death, heaven and hell war. Let me tell you, if we think that our, if our intention is to wade into the Philistine camp to take back the Ark of the Covenant for the glory of our God, and we think that Philistine spirit's going to fold up like a lawn chair and let us have our way, we're kidding ourselves, Right? It's a war. It's a war. Number two, if I were to plant that church today or be involved in a ministry like that, uh, I would not taunt or provoke the devil the way I did back then. I used to march in front of my little congregation, giving it this deal, you know, talking about the devil being such a loser. How crazy was that? I would not taunt or provoke the devil, nor would I be cavalier about his intentions, his wiles, his plots, his schemes, his devices, or his ability. I'm looking around this room. I bet you that every person in here believes that Satan is a defeated foe. Can I get a witness? Well, I'm used to being in a rescue mission. You've got to talk back to me a little bit, all right? I would, as I look at this crowd, you look pretty orthodox to me, believe it or not. So I would, I'd put money on the fact that we all, when we think about it, rejoice in the knowledge that our Savior Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago on the cross, crushed the serpent's head. But, let me tell you, there's still a lot of might in the death twitch. So I don't taunt, I don't provoke, I don't fool around. I don't really talk about the devil very much. I don't want to give him any more pub than he's already getting on his own. But I tell you, I don't take him lightly, and I am not cavalier toward his abilities. 
I was then, I'm not now. If I were to plant that church today or be involved in a like ministry, number three, I would not presume on the grace of God as I did then by arrogantly assuming, thinking, believing that I was somehow bulletproof. Or let me change the metaphor, that I was Teflon coated and the things that would stick to other mere mortals in the ministry wouldn't hang on to me. I had this cockeyed notion in my head. I, I would not admit it to too many people, but I'll tell you, and it's with shame that I say it, I had this notion that I had some special status in the kingdom of God that therefore exempted me from being watchful and careful as my other brothers needed to be. I actually believed. This is, this is crazy to say too. It gives me a little bit of a shiver down my spine to say it, but I actually believed that no evil would dare come nigh my house only to find out it not only came nigh my house, it sauntered on in and plopped itself down in my leather chair. I don't presume on the grace of God in any way, shape, or form. Matter of fact, I seek by the grace of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit to humble myself under the mighty hand of my God, knowing that he then will bear me up. If I were to plant that same church today or something like it or be involved in that kind of ministry, which I guess I am, running a rescue mission full of 350 drug addicts and mentally ill people and demonized men, if I, were to, if I were to be involved in that kind of ministry, number four, I would be forcefully intentional, demanding and exacting in the guiding and guarding, the leading and the protecting of my home. I know you believe this, but let me just say it to get it off my chest. Your first church is not the one you're planting. Your first church is the one under your roof. Let me tell you this, if you have a family, if you have a home, if you have a wife and kids, there's a shape-charged detonation aimed right at your front door. And you need to be on the, on the wall. You know what I'm talking about. You need to be on the wall surrounding your little tribe. And don't come down off that wall to visit with Sanballat and Tobiah to talk about the foolishness that people will raise up in your church. Well, I have this theological problem with what you said. Or I just, I have a concern about the color of the ladies' bathroom. Don't come down off the wall to discuss church stuff with church people, especially if it causes you to leave in abeyance and to leave vulnerable your little flock at home. Put down that builder's trowel or the sword of the Spirit for any reason whatsoever. You know, the devil knows that if he can destroy your home, or even if he can simply neutralize it, your ministry shot. What does it profit 
a pastor, gain the whole world, lose his own soul. You'd be better off if it comes to it to leave it all behind and go get a job at McDonald's or Home Depot. If I were to plant that church today or be involved in a ministry like that, number five, this is the last thing, I would daily search my own heart as to my motives for doing what I'm doing. The question I would ask, as a matter of fact, it's the question I do ask several times every day in doing what I'm doing right now. The question is something like this. Am I doing this to make a splash? Am I doing this because it's kind of edgy? Am I doing this because it makes me look cool? Am I doing this because it's so far out of the mainstream that it gives my father some gas? Am I doing this to make a name for myself? Am I doing this to build a reputation? Am I doing this in the hopes that the guy at the table next to me will somehow invite me to be the speaker at his deal next year? Or am I doing this because it gives me a great supreme opportunity to decrease so that my living Jesus might increase. I guess it all comes down to this. At least in my mind it does. There's only one position to take to be prepared for, let me say again, the inevitable assault of the enemy camp. The opposition that if it hadn't come your way yet and you keep after it and you preach the gospel, you guarantee it's going to come at you. There's only one position to take. And that's lying face down in a pool of blood at the foot of a mighty cross from which by faith you declare greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. My life is hid with God in Christ I will resist the devil and he will flee from me. But to him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb, blessing, glory, honor, and power now and forevermore. Amen. I have a confession to make, and it's particularly terrifying to make after hearing those words. Uh, I am prone to trust my gifting, my work, and my strategy. And as a result, I overwork and I'm prayerless. Listen to those words, wash your soul, and that's a scary confession to make. So if there's one lesson that I could offer from the early stages of a church plant based out of my weakness and out of my confession, it's this, stay desperate for the presence of God. I want to pick us up where Dick left us at the face, on our faces before the cross of Jesus. And I just want to remind us and call us to desperation for God's presence with a conviction and a confidence that if we get God, we get everything. If we get him, we get everything. I'm reminded of Luke 18, the story that Jesus tells of the persistent widow that knocks and won't quit knocking. 
says that she wanted justice and she came to a judge that was not righteous and was not positioned to give her the answer that she was searching for, but she knocked and she knocked and she knocked and it says that he waited, he said no, but then he comes around, he says, it's because she has bothered me. She has come so frequently that she has beat me down with her coming. And so I will give her justice. And Jesus then gives commentary on this story saying this. He says, will the saints cry out day and night such that their judge will give them speedily the justice that they call out for? He says, will the son of man find faith on the earth when he comes again? I fear that he won't find it in me. Because the truth is, I am prone to trust my giftings and my strategy, to trust my effort and my work, to wear myself out as a prayerless individual and not to show up and start knocking. And we've just heard testimony to what happens in those spaces and in those ways. And so my invitation for us today is to ask two questions out of Luke 18 that will call our hearts back to appropriate desperation. Two questions that that text poses for us that as we ask and answer those questions, it will draw our hearts to the proper desperation that we might take that proper posture on our face before Jesus, knowing that outside of that place, we will be powerless. We will come undone. The first question is this, is your task manageable? Is your task manageable? Jesus chooses a widow knocking on the door of an unrighteous judge because we in her see one who cannot accomplish the task. She needs justice that she can't muster up. There's no amount of strategy and structure and effort and work that's going to all of a sudden deliver what she needs. So she has to stay at the door and keep knocking. There's nowhere else she can go and there's nothing else she can do. She has to knock at this door because she knows I cannot accomplish my task. The struggle for me, the reason that I wear myself out and I'm prayerless is because I'm trying to accomplish a task that's manageable. I've allowed it to shrink. I think if I could plant a sustainable church with a nice budget and someday have a good building, if I could build a unified staff, if I could preach in a way that is interesting, all of those things are good, but the truth is I can go study harder, learn more, get some good leadership principles. I can do all that. That's manageable. We we can do enough to figure out how to build the thing, do the thing, do it right. I can go to more conferences, more stuff. I can figure it out. That's a manageable task. There are a lot of people planting sustainable churches with nice buildings and unified staffs and very interesting preaching and the presence and the power of God is not on fire in that place. Why? It's because they're accomplishing a manageable task. I think what Jesus is saying to his disciples is realize your task is not manageable. What he's saying is this, we have been called to rattle the gates of hell and the way that Dick is talking about in the sense of hungering for Jesus and stepping out into this place where Jesus described his mission as the plundering of the strong man's house. He said he is bound and now I'm taking what's mine and he's inviting his disciples in the hopes that in the proclamation and the belief of the gospel that men and women and children are removed from death to life, that will never fit on your flow chart. It will never be strategized. It will never be accomplished by your effort or mine. I'm wearing myself out as a prayerless individual and not seeing the sorts of things that I wanna see because it's not a manageable task. The first thing that Jesus is saying is you're trying to accomplish something manageable. You won't stay at the door and keep knocking because you've got another book to read, another conference to go to, another thing to do. When you get that, then you'll be able to accomplish your manageable task. But he says, when you're ready to get after mine that's unmanageable, that's bigger than anything that you ever dreamed of, when you're ready to step into what I'm doing, you'll come to the door and you'll start knocking. Desperation will start to build. But there's a second thing that has to be in place. 
We actually have to have confidence that the one on the other side of the door can do something about it. You see, this, this woman knew this is the judge. This is the one with the authority to do something about my need. And the scariest reality that I often find on those overworked prayerless weeks is that I have ceased to have confidence about the one on the other side of the door. Like my actions show it. I have more confidence in the voice of Tim Keller or Ed Stetzer or whoever's at the next exponential conference or because of my great respect and trust for men in the room, it's Bruce Wesley or Blake Wilson or pick your, I love those voices. I wanna keep learning, but I'm so busy rubbernecking. I'm so busy leaning in. I'm so busy trying to learn from them that I am not hungering for the voice of God. The door that I'm knocking on is not the door of heaven. It's the next conference. It's the next book. It's the next podcast. And I believe that we will not be a people that are powerful, that are seeing the kingdom of God come to Houston as it is in heaven. Hear this, if we are not long in the presence of God, we will not be full of the power of God. And the truth is that as we have knocked on every other door, as my heart has continued to just think, if I could crack the code, have the silver bullet, if I, if I can accomplish this manageable task with all the people that I have confidence in, wouldn't that be great? And Jesus is going, would you get after an unmanageable task with my power? My great dream, and I'm willing to give my life to it, and I wanna do it alongside of each of you, is that the kingdom of God would come in Houston as it is in heaven, but it's not gonna happen until we are a people that will get desperate for the presence of God. Not our church, not our brand name, not our own name and lights. All of it has to die in hopes that the name of Jesus would live in and through our ministries, that we would go and we would start knocking and that we would be the people that don't stop because we know that outside of the presence and the power of God, this grand task, we're not gonna see it happen, but with his power, with the one on the other side of that door, as we knock and knock and knock and he answers, hold on. We will see grand and glorious things as we decrease and that lamb on the throne increases in our city. I long to do that alongside of you. I long for each of us to stay present, Stay, stay desperate for the presence of God because if we get him, we get everything. Amen. Amen.